Good to see you this morning. I've never done this before. We're switching our gears a little bit, changing from a Genesis series. We're going to go now into the resurrection. And I've preached on Easter every Sunday. I've been here since 2011. So there's been a lot of Easter's that have went by. But I have never done this in my 20-some years in ministry in a local church. And this is what I'm going to do. We're going to take each gospel, so you'll know where I'm going the next four weeks. This week's going to be Matthew, next week Mark, then Luke, then John on Easter Sunday. I'm going to go through each resurrection account with you. Uh, As you know, there are seven sayings from the cross uh, if you compile them all together. Matthew only gives one saying. Why does he do that? Okay, so maybe there will be some information here that you haven't learned before. But we want to have practical lessons on what this means to our life. And it's kind of a building message, okay? So at the very end, on Resurrection Sunday morning, we're going to give some implications of everything together as we talk about the Lord's uh, resurrection from the grave. But today, kind of an interesting passage with a little bit of detail in it, but I think it's, uh, if you'll hang in there with me, it'll be worth it in the end. So little series on resurrection reflections, and this morning we're looking at the resurrection of uh, Matthew's account. Now, take a big deep breath. It's hot in here, I know. Don't pass out on me, so I don't know how hot it is. You want me to go look? Andrew, why don't you go look and see if it's, if it's over 70, people will faint, okay? <laughs> but, so I don't want you going to sleep on me because it's a little bit of teaching, but teaching is good for you. Instead of me standing up here yelling at you, I want you to look in the text and actually learn something from God's Word this morning. But Matthew writes his gospel not chronologically. So when you go to read the gospel of Matthew and then you read Mark, you'll see things in Mark that come way before they do in Matthew. Matthew is not presenting the gospel in a chronological order. We are Westerners. We like to think A, then B, then C, then D. But Matthew's purpose was not to do that. Mark is the chronological gospel. If you want to know the order of events, you read Mark. But if you want to know what Jesus was being shown or demonstrated to the nation of Israel as, then you read Matthew. And Matthew's sole purpose in writing his book and compiling it and putting the stories together was to show the nation of Israel they had rejected God in flesh who was prophesied to come to them, they turned him down. And as a result of that, their kingdom was taken from them and was no longer available to that nation. Now, if you just would think with me for a minute through the Gospel of Matthew, let's just go through it in our mind real quick. In chapter 1, the genealogy is given. Matthew starts out with who? Abraham. If you read Luke's genealogy, Luke starts out with who? Adam. Matthew ties it to the covenant made with Israel. Luke ties it all the way back to mankind. Why? Because Luke is presenting the gospel of Jesus as the son of man to the Gentiles and all. Now Matthew includes some Gentiles, but his primary goal is to the nation of Israel. And that's why he starts that way. So the genealogy of the king in chapter 1. Then you have in chapter 2 what the birth of the king. The magi come to worship him. The leaders of Israel try to kill him. Then you have the baptism of the king. 
and the identification with the nation of Israel. Now Jesus begins to preach the gospel of the kingdom. Then in chapters 5, 6, and 7, we call it the Sermon on the Mount. That is the message of the kingdom from the king himself. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. Well, then you get into chapters 7, 8, 9, and 10. And all of a sudden, you have this unfolding of who Jesus really is. And Matthew goes back and he shows from the prophets that Jesus was the Messiah predicted who would have power over three realms. He would have power over the physical realm. He could heal people. He would have power over the demonic realm. He could cast out demons. And he would have power over the natural realm. He could calm the storm. He could do things that were above nature or supernatural. 8, 9, and 10. He lays out the case. Then you get into chapters 11 and 12. What are the religious leaders doing and saying about Jesus? He is doing the miracles by the name of the devil. And then in chapter 12, that's why you have there the unpardonable sin. And that was a national sin, by the way, not an individual sin. This generation has denied me from the religious leaders down. As a result of that, Jesus now begins to preach in parables. Matthew chapter 13. And now the mystery of the kingdom, it's taken away. They, they wouldn't see it until it came back. And I could lay the case out. I can see y'all are going to sleep on me. But nevertheless, Matthew is laying out his argument all the way through that book. That Jesus is exactly who God said he would be. And he came and the people... Turned him down. Now, can you imagine? And by the way, Christianity, if, if you are a believer this morning and you ever worry about, you know, is there evidence of Christianity? I will say this. Christianity is the only faith that has a resurrected Savior. Not Buddha, not Islam, not Hinduism. None except Christianity. We are the only ones that have a resurrected Savior. And... Plenty and plenty of evidence. And this is what Matthew lays out in his witness. People saw Jesus resurrected from the dead. And it was undeniable. They tried lying. They tried bribery. They tried everything they could to get this story squelched. But two things they could never produce. One, the dead body of Jesus. Okay, all you have to do is present the dead body of this man and this whole thing will be silenced. They could not produce the dead body of Jesus. And the second thing they couldn't produce was enough evidence to withhold it. Jesus appeared to 500 people at one time. Now in Jewish law, you had to have at least two to three witnesses to prove something true. 500? 500? I mean, seriously, can you imagine sitting through a court trial with 500 witnesses? Yeah, I saw him. I saw him. You want me to do that 500 times? I mean, you all get the point. That's a lot of people. And that was at one sitting while Jesus met his disciples in Galilee. So Matthew's going to lay out this argument. But along with that, some evidences that God's presence was there during the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. And I have a little question about the burial and the resurrection I'm going to throw in here in a minute, that I want you to think about that you may never have reflected upon. Let me do it now. 
I'll, I'll just ask it and you can kind of let it mull around. The incarnation when Jesus became flesh was seen by people, right? His birth. His ascension, that's where he was taken up into third heaven with everyone watching him, was seen by everyone, they, or those who were there. His resurrection, that is when his physical body was dead and spiritual life came into it and it came out in a glorified form. Jesus is the first and only person in a glorified body even to this day. No one else has a glorified body. Elijah doesn't have one. Moses, I'm sorry, not Moses. Uh, Enoch doesn't have one. Lazarus doesn't have one. Jesus is the only one with a glorified body. Why did no one see that event? No one saw the life coming into him and him actually rising. When the angel opened the tomb, Jesus wasn't in there. He was gone. Why? Why did God not allow people to watch the life and the resurrected body come up? Now, I'm just asking that question. I'll try to answer it here in a moment. But that's interesting, isn't it? But I think there's a good answer for it. But Matthew concludes his story in three ways, Ian Campbell points out, with a narrative of the initial grave event, the response on the part of the Jewish leaders, and then Jesus' final commission. So, truth and then practicality to what happened. And so, Matthew is also going to focus on four major players on the end here. This is all teaching stuff, but it's very informational when you see this, because look at the number of people that witnessed the resurrection. The angels... The soldiers, the women, I'll come back to that one, and more indirectly, religious leaders. They knew what had happened, and they, were, they knew they were in trouble. So when we think about an outline of this passage, here's kind of an outline. You can always go back and get the slides off the screen if you want to see them. But basically, this is how we're going to follow this. But I'm going to go back just a little piece and pick up right at the moment of Christ's death. Okay, so... I have my passage turned in my Bible. I also put it on the screen. So we're going to pick up reading in Matthew chapter 27, verse 45. And it's a lot of text. I never apologize for reading the Bible because it's more important than anything I have to say. Let's read it together contemplatively here. Uh, who's on the slide back there? David, I'm going to read from my Bible. Why don't you... Move with me there, okay? Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. The sixth hour would have been what time? There was darkness from the sixth hour until the... There was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, the fifth saying from the cross, by the way, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So Jesus died about three o'clock in the evening. He was put on at nine in the morning. And then at 12 o'clock, the sky turned black. And then from 12 to three o'clock, Jesus, some people, theologians say the reason the sky turned black was because God the Father's presence was there and Jesus was at that time bearing the sin of the world. We'll talk about that on Good Friday. But nevertheless, the sky turns black. Matthew records that. Verse 47, And some of the bystanders hearing it said, This man is calling Elijah. 
Now, if you remember, people identified Jesus with Elijah. They thought he was Elijah. So here they think that Jesus is calling for Elijah to come back on his chariot and rescue him. But Jesus didn't call for Elijah. Who did he call for? Eli, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Now, there's a lot we could talk about there. I'm going to move on for time's sake. This man is calling for Elijah, and one of them at once ran and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Now we know from another gospel, what did he say? Into thy hands I commit my spirit. Matthew didn't, he didn't say that though. He just said, why have you forsaken me? What do you think the nation of Israel would have read when they read the only saying that Matthew said? Why have you forsaken me? Do you not think that the Israelites who had rejected him as the Messiah would have related with that? I mean, you're talking about a gut punch here. Your Lord and Messiah was rejected by the Father, and guess what? You did the same to him. Okay, verse 51. And behold, at, at his death, when he yielded up his spirit, and behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. Now, if you study the tabernacle, there were two curtains. One on the outside, one on the inner side. And some people question on, you know, which one was it, blah, blah, blah. Okay, it, it doesn't matter. Probably the one on the inner side between the, the court and, and the Holy of Holies. But the text says that it was torn. And by the way, it was a cloth. I'm, I'm thinking it was 30 feet this way, 60 feet that way, and thick as the palm's hand. That's a thick curtain with skins and woven material, folks. Torn from the top to the bottom. Now, what did that veil do? It prevented people who were not in the priesthood from entering into the temple, the innermost part. And so when that veil is torn, what does that signify? There is now open access and entrance right into God's presence because of the life that was shed in the person of Jesus Christ, okay? So the curtain of the temple was torn into from the top to the bottom, that signifies something. Who tore it? God tore it. Okay, there's one miraculous. So the, the earth turned dark. The temple is now torn in two from top to bottom, the veil. Now notice the next part of the verse. And the earth shook. So now we have what? An earthquake. So an, an, a literal earthquake happened. If that's not the Holy Spirit, I wouldn't answer that. Uh, Unless he wants to answer this right here. But, but notice what it says. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. So when Christ dies, there's an earthquake and now you have rocks that are splitting in two. What, what, when you hear this and when you read earthquake, rock splitting, what is this signifying to you that's occurring? If you would go back in the Old Testament and you had the earthquake and the rock splitting, what is this saying? Ooh, I wish we were in a classroom. I would have some fun out of you all. Whose presence was signified by earthquakes, fire, wind? Can you all tell me? The Father. Okay. 
And if we were in a good theology class here, I would be questioning, did the Father abandon Jesus when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Did, did he literally abandon, abandon him? I've heard preachers say that God the Father completely abandoned Jesus at this time. What? What? He didn't completely abandon him. He did pour out his wrath on him. Why did he do that? Because someone has to bear the penalty for the sin of the world. Who did that? Jesus. You're talking about a weight. I mean, I can't even bear the weight of my own sin when I really know who I am. Can you imagine me having to bear your sin? I mean, could you all literally imagine if I had to bear your sin or you had to bear everybody in this room's sin, their conscience, their guilt, everything about it? I mean, I do good with my, my own. I can't even handle it. But can you imagine the sin of the world being put upon you for, for all time, from Adam until the last man that will ever be born? Jesus paid that penalty for the wrath of that much sin. He died for it all. I mean, that's some weighty sin, folks. And mine was in there. Was yours? The tombs also were opened. Now, notice what Matthew says. So, in other words, when Jesus came about, there were other tombs in that area. Karen and I have been there. And they were split and opened. Now, notice what Matthew says, because he's very careful here. He says, And many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep, in other words, they had died, were raised and coming out of the tombs when? Look down at your text. After his resurrection, <clears throat> they went into the holy city and appeared to many. So now you have another miraculous sign that some people like Lazarus who had died, when Jesus rose on the Sunday morning, they also came out of the grave and they were alive. Now there's a question here. Did they just have a resurrected body like Lazarus or did they have a body in full glorified form like Jesus? My answer would be it was like Lazarus. Jesus is the only person with a fully glorified body at this point. And there's other theological reasons for that, but this was evidence, folks. And by the way, we don't talk about this evidence a lot. Can you imagine? Can you imagine what this would be like? You attended the funeral of one of your family members and you went to Horn and saw them and you know, they embalmed them and Jesus comes up the next day and there you see him walking down the street of Christiansburg. I mean, there's not a whole lot of talk about this in the New Testament, but this is actually what happened. It was an undeniable fact that Christ rose from the dead. And other people and their dead bodies who rose in a form like Lazarus, a resuscitated form, they could attest to it as well. Matthew is the only author who points this out, this specifically. Why do you think he did that? I think it's because the people who were living in Israel at that time knew this was undeniable. And Matthew includes this in there so that they would say in their mind, you know what, this is a fact. Because we saw Aunt Sally and Uncle Fred and often wondered why Jesus resurrected that one, but he did anyway. But 
But this is what happened, folks. Okay, I'm, I'm going on. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion, that is the leader over 100 Roman marines, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, his body in the grave, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. Now why do you think Matthew would include a bunch of Roman pagan soldiers identifying Jesus as the Messiah? What would this be saying to an Israelite who was reading it? Even a, a pagan Gentile recognized this was God. Okay? Verse 53, 55. There were also many women there. Now, folks, how do I say this? In the first century, many people say that women were not considered to be a legitimate, valid witness to an event. In other words, their testimony meant nothing. Now, if you were fabricating a story and you were just, you know, making it as real as you could, would you really have put that women were there if their testimony meant nothing in court? Would you? Please say no. If you were writing it to fabricate it, you would say, and a bunch of men, high-standing, high-ranking men were standing there. But Matthew lays it out here like it was. There were women who followed him all the way from Galilee up north, all the way down for him to be buried, and they never left him. They stayed with him the whole time while he was on the cross, and while he was buried, the women stayed there. Where did his disciples go? Where did they go? They fled. But who stayed? The men left. The women stayed. Let me tell you something, folks. This is, a, this is called a... Yeah. Oh. All the men and all the disciples, would every time they read this, I'm sure they went, oh, and they cringed. You know why they, why they fled? Because they watched Jesus die on that cross and they were afraid they were next. And they ran for their life. But the women stayed. There were also many women there looking on from a distance who had followed Jesus from Galilee, ministering to him, among whom were Mary Magdalene and Mary, the father of, uh, mother of James and Joseph, and the mother of the sons of Zebedee. Some people think her name was Salome. So here are these three women. And by the way, you should write beside your Bible here, Luke chapter 8, verse 3. Because this is one of the best missionary passages to preach. Luke 8, 3. I think it's 3. It's 2 or 3. These women supported Jesus and the disciples out of their own purse. Individual missionary support from these women. They supported his ministry. And Jesus led them, by the way. You know, he, he could have went out and did what? Made... Money come up in a fish's mouth. He could have done whatever he wanted. He allowed people to be involved in his ministry. And he allowed them to give money to fund his ministry. Very fascinating. And these women not only supported it financially, but they supported it with their life. They were there. All right? Verse 57, When it was evening, there came a rich man from Arimathea 
named Joseph, who was also a disciple of Jesus. So that answers your question, can a rich person be saved? What did Jesus say when he, it, it's, more, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than a rich man to get saved? What do you mean by that? Boy, I wish we had time. I'd have fun. Here's a rich man. What happened? He came. His name was Joseph of Arimathea, in case anybody wanted to know. He was also a disciple of Jesus, and he went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Then Pilate ordered it to be given to him. And Joseph took the body and wrapped it in a clean linen shroud and laid it in his own new tomb, which he had cut out in the rock. And he had rolled a great stone to the entrance of the tomb and went away. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary were there sitting opposite the tomb. They never left him. This is fascinating. The next day, that is after the day of preparation, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, we remember how that imposter said while he was still alive, after three days I will rise. And by the way, he did say that, didn't he? Therefore, order the tomb to be made secure until the third day, lest his disciples go and steal him away and tell the people he has risen from the dead. And then the last fraud would be worse than the first. So Pilate said to them, You have a guard of soldiers. Go make it as secure as you can. So they went and made the tomb secure by sealing the stone and setting a guard. You should underline that little phrase, sealing the stone. How did they seal a stone over a door? They would oftentimes take rope and they would tuck down in the seal and they would take a pile of wax, hot molten wax, and pour up over the top of this big rock, and this wax would run over both sides, and the rope was in there, and the wax would cover it. So if the seal was broken, if anybody tried to get in, you could see it. So there's no question here that nobody was going to get in this tomb without it being known. And Matthew's making this evidence. I mean, listen, they had a hundred guards. They had the permission of Pilate. They had a, a sealed tomb. They had people outside surrounding it. I mean... You're talking about a secure place. This was very secure. But what happens? Chapter 28, verse 1. After the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, that would be Sunday morning, right? Jews worshipped on what day? Saturday, because that's the Sabbath. Christians worship on what day? Why do we worship on Sunday? Because that's the resurrection day. Good. Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. By the way, who was first back to the tomb? I hate to keep pointing this out, but all the ladies are smiling. All the men are like me. The first person, first people back to the tomb were the women. I mean, wow. What a shot. And behold... And by the way, before I go on, can you imagine... Jesus predicted his death and resurrection how many times in the Gospel of Matthew? Just say three. Three. Chapter 16, chapter 17, chapter 20. Three times he said, Son of man must be crucified, buried, and rise again. One time Peter said, Not so, Lord, you'll not. And get behind me, Satan. You're trying to do the work of Satan and get me to bypass the cross. That's what he told him. Three times Jesus said, The Son of man must be killed, buried, and rise again. And what was the response? 
you would think the disciples would believe, right? Did they believe? They were scared to death for their life. This should make you feel really good, by the way. This is always comforting to me. Jesus never quit on them. Peter cursed him the night he was being crucified. I told you I never knew him. Three times Peter said it. Did Jesus turn Peter away? Absolutely not. He went right straight to him after the resurrection and restored him. Fascinating. He doesn't quit on his people. Behold, there was a great earthquake. Here's a second earthquake. One was when he was dying on the cross. Look what Matthew records. And there was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. Now why did he roll back the stone? As one old preacher said, and he says it wasn't to let Jesus out. It was to let his followers in. <laughs> Jesus didn't need the stone rolled to get through the door. As is proven in the Gospel of John, he just appears right through walls. He rolled the stone back and sat on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing white as snow. Watch the irony here. And for fear of him, the guards trembled and became like dead men. Now, by the way, these were the roughest, meanest guards you've ever seen. And here the, the live, the dead man comes to life and the live men do what? Appear to be dead. Now, there's some question here. Did they faint? Some people believe they fainted in their corpse. You know, they were just laid out. Have y'all seen somebody faint? They look dead for a minute till you see them breathe. Some people believe that they all fainted. Others believe they just had this gasping. You know, they had seen this glorious angel like a lightning bolt had hit them and fear struck in them. They didn't know what to do. But the angel said to the women, not to the guards, to the women, do not be afraid, for I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. For he's risen. And he has a message for you. He said, uh, Come and see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead. And behold, he's going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So think about this. Here are these women. And they are, they are the ones who are now going to be the messengers to tell his disciples the Jesus that they followed and believed is now alive and he's going to meet them where? Several miles north up in Galilee. So the women become the carriers, the first good news carriers of this gospel of resurrection to his disciples. And now, you have to go to the other gospel accounts to figure out what happens. And, and can I, you know what happens from John? They go tell Peter, and what does Peter do? Him and John get in a foot race. Because they, they don't believe it. They get in a foot race. Who outran the other one? Anyway, Matthew doesn't record that though. Watch what he says. He's going to meet you in Galilee. Verse 8, so they departed from the tomb with fear and great joy. Notice how these two run parallel together. The human nature, by the way, is a fascinating Thing. We can have fear and great joy inside of us at the same time. It's amazing, isn't it? So they've seen this man butchered on the cross, put in a grave. Now he, he, he is risen. 
Notice what happens. And behold, Jesus met them as they were running to see the disciples. He met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go, tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. Wow. I'm going to keep on reading here, because Matthew, by the way, he's not chronological. He's giving you the idea here. But meanwhile, while this was going on, what else was happening? Verse 11, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. Wouldn't you like to have been a fly on that wall? You remember that guy you all said was an imposter? You, you remember him? Yeah. You had a hundred of us outside and we sealed that tomb up as tight as we could and we all stood there. I'm going to tell you something. He ain't there. What do you mean he's not there? I'm telling you he's not there. He's not there. And a, an angel or something came down and knocked all of us down to the ground and we, we couldn't do anything. We were just paralyzed. And the stone rolled away and not one of us touched it. And we looked in that grave and you listen to me carefully. Not one of those grave clothes was disturbed. His body came out of them wrapped linens and nobody cut it. Now you tell me what happened. Is he an imposter or not? Now, what do these high priests say? They say, oh my goodness, what are we going to do? Look at the text. When they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, Tell people his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. Now, by the way, if a Roman soldier got caught sleeping on a job, what happened to them? And somebody escaped? Life for life. You were automatically killed. Isn't it amazing, by the way, what bribery will do? This is a whole other sermon, and I'll, I won't say that. But there's nothing new in Congress. <laughs> nothing. No, notice, what, notice what happened, verse 14. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. We'll get him to grant you a pardon. You just take this hush money, go tell people that his disciples stole him. If you get in trouble, we'll take care of it. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And notice what Matthew says. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now Matthew was probably written around 80 what? 50s, late 50s, 60s. So here you have a 30 year gap probably. And Matthew says what? He says CNN still reporting the same story. NBC, ABC, all the rest. Of, and even Fox is picking up on a little bit of it. And this is what happened. It was reported. Now, what happens? I didn't put the rest of this on the screen, but I'm so excited I have to read it. Verse 16, you have to look in your Bible. The eleven disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. Some doubted. They worshipped him, but some doubted. Isn't that interesting? Fear and great joy. Worship and doubt at the same time. You ever have that? I mean, you want to worship Jesus, but, but there's like, oh, can that really be? I mean, and this is what was going on inside of him. Now, notice what he says. 
And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore, church, make disciples of all ethnicities, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Wow, what an account. What an account. Now, what are some lessons that we learn from this passage for our life? Just, just some quick little lessons here, okay? First of all, Jesus saves and uses the most unlikely people. It's fascinating when you look at this story, especially verses 55 and 56, these women that Jesus used. By the way, Christianity was never intended and never began as a woman-oppressive uh, system. As a matter of fact, Christianity is what liberated women. Liberated them. If you hear anything other than that, you are hearing lies. Jesus appeared and he gave these women the first commission to go and tell. Fascinating. Jesus allowed women to be involved in his ministry. Mary Magdalene, do you all know who Mary Magdalene was? She was not the most upright of citizens. Jesus healed her, and he went into her home, and he allowed her to be involved in his ministry. And here are all these women with Jesus. The people of Israel and the high leaders looked upon them as scum. And guess who Jesus saved? By the way, he went into one unruly person's home and one of the religious leaders came to him and said you apparently you're not a very important man because you don't know whose home you went in and Jesus said those who go to a doctor are sick and they need a physician but those who aren't sick don't go to a doctor now go back and learn what that means I will have mercy and not sacrifice you got to go all the way back in the book of Hosea chapter 6, and read the context there where the nation of Israel was so arrogant and haughty, God was judging them. I would have mercy instead of sacrifice. If that man would have thought about what Hosea was saying, he would have went, ugh, my big mouth. I couldn't even see God was being merciful to them. He didn't come to call the righteous. He came to call sinners to repentance. The Apostle Paul over in the book of 1 Corinthians says, You know what, brothers? Those of you of low esteem that the world will not look on. Those of us who will go to the grave and never will we have fame. Never will anybody know us. They'll read our obituary one day and flip the paper over the next day and we'll be gone. Not many wise, not many mighty, not many noble. But to us who believe, guess what? We have the power of eternal life through the gospel of Jesus living inside of us and our story's not over with their obituary. And He doesn't come just because of our name or status. He comes because He loves us. So I love this first lesson. He saves the most unlikely people. Mm, right here's one. Wow. I am one of the most unlikely and thank Jesus for that. A second lesson. Like Joseph, we must allow Jesus to take our place. Isn't it interesting that Joseph 
gave his tomb for Jesus. I mean, Joseph knew he was going to die. But instead, he allowed Jesus to come and take his place in the tomb. He gave him his tomb. And practically speaking here, what is it that you and I must allow Jesus to take from us so that we don't have to answer for it? What is it? It's our sin. Our sin. You see, folks, there is eternal life for those who believe upon Jesus and there is eternal death for those who don't. Now listen carefully. Listen carefully. If we do not allow Jesus to pay our sin debt, then our, our body after we die will be resurrected and fit for eternal suffering. Dying, they will never die. And they will have to pay their sin debt for all eternity. I have family members just like that. They went to their grave not trusting Jesus for eternal life. And unfortunately, they will have to pay their sin debt that Jesus offered to pay for them. Because their suffering and their payment will never be enough to satisfy God's wrath. Now, you'll have to take that issue up with him, not me. But he gives the opportunity for anyone who hears the gospel to believe so that our sin debt can be fully paid and we can have the free gift of eternal life. As Zach quoted this morning, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us. For you are not saved by your good works. It's by the grace of God. Believing on Jesus. Whoever believes in me shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. He shall, he shall not come into condemnation. Because he's crossed over from death to life. By doing what? Believing. Believe he died on the cross and paid your sin debt. By the way, the resurrection, theologically, does not pay for your sin. Did you hear me? The resurrection does not pay your sin debt. Christ's death on the cross is what paid your sin debt. Theologically, the resurrection proves that God accepted Christ's payment. Now, the Apostle Paul tells us this truth theologically. Matthew doesn't tell us that. Mark, John, Luke, they don't tell us. Paul does. But the resurrection proves that God accepted his sacrifice on the cross as the full payment. And we must allow Jesus to take our place. Give Him our sin. And what does He do, do for us? 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 20 and 21. What does He give us in exchange for our sin? He gives us His what? His righteousness. How righteous do you have to be to get into heaven? You have to be as righteous as Jesus is. So how do you get His righteousness? You get it as a free gift. When you believe the gospel. And that's how God sees us in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said he is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, on and on. Praise the Lord for Jesus. Why would you ever want to pay for your own sin? I, for the life of me, I can't figure that out. Why would people want to pay for their own sin? Let him take it. And believe on him for eternal life. Here's another lesson. Evidence alone will not convince or convert the heart. It has to be coupled with faith. Here are these religious leaders. 
There is no question Jesus rose from the grave. It's undeniable. Were they converted? We don't know. At that point, they weren't. They were Democrats and Republicans. Excuse me. They were corrupt, corrupt leaders trying to pay people to keep the truth out. But what happened? What happened? You read on over in the book of Acts. What does the book of Acts record about many of the chief priests and elders? It says many too, by the way. Many of them believed. Many believed. Fascinating. Undeniable evidence. But evidence alone will not convert the heart. Faith has to be applied. And it's a miraculous work of God. That's why when you feel that urging that you need to respond to God, you better do it. That's God's Spirit working in your life. Don't push Him away. Believe. Evidence alone is not enough. It has to have faith. Here's another lesson. It's a good place for you all even to say amen. Jesus is alive. And so are we. He's alive. He came up out of the grave. He's not dead. Not one person's found His body. So hear me, folks. The burden of evidence is not on the believer to show that Jesus is alive. The burden of the evidence is on the unbeliever to show that He's not. Prove to me Jesus is alive. Well, prove He's not. Prove to me He had a resurrected body. Well, prove He didn't. we got 500 witnesses. And years and years of time. I mean, can you prove He's not? He is alive. But let me tell you the greatest evidence of His, his being alive is a changed life. A changed heart. How can a message of the gospel of the grace of God come into a sinner's life and turn them from a selfish, stingy, mean, hostile, angry, unforgiving, unrepentant heathen and all of a sudden an unexchangeable peace comes in the heart. You're able to forgive. You're able to love. You're able to do I mean, you're a totally different person. Changes your life. Can you explain that to me? Apart from the Holy Spirit of God living and dwelling inside of a person and totally and radically changing their life, that doesn't mean you don't sin. But when you do, you really feel dirty. And you know it. You're out of fellowship. You know it. You need to confess. Get right, not back in the family. You don't have to get back in the family. It's not relationship, it's fellowship. How do, you, how do you get back in fellowship? If we Christians confess our sins, God the Father is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all that Christian sin that we do after we're a believer. And we get back in fellowship with Him. He's alive and so are we. I, I, I'd love to go over in the New Testament epistles. What, what does Paul say about the resurrected life of Christ living in him? He knew that. In Ephesians chapter 1, he prayed what? He prayed that the believer would know that living inside of us is the same resurrection power. If you don't believe me, read Ephesians chapter 1 that raised Jesus from the dead. is working in you working in us. We're alive. Because of the resurrection, we, we don't have to fear death. Boy, we fear death, don't we? 
We don't want to die. I read a story this week about Stonewall Jackson. You all have heard the story. He, he was a staunch Presbyterian, hardcore. He stood out in a battle one time. People were shooting at him. Lead was flying everywhere. Stonewall Jackson just stayed there, and his men were in awe of him. How in the world can that man stay? He, he believed that if it was his time to die, he was going to die. And one man came to him and said, you know, how, how can you stand there in fear? He said, sir, when you trust in the providence of God... He said, you learn to be as comfortable on the battlefield as you are in the bed. He said, if it's my time to go, I'll go. You know how Stonewall Jackson died? Not on a battlefield. He died in his bed of pneumonia. We don't have to fear death. Write down Hebrews chapter 2. Jesus took a body like us and became a man so that he would die on the cross and be raised again. Why? So that he could destroy him who had power over death and the fear of death our whole life. The enemy. What is Satan's grip and power over humanity? What was it? From the Garden of Eden all the way up to the resurrection, what was Satan's power? Death! It's what everybody tried to avoid. Death. After Jesus rose from the grave, he shattered that. Because what did he prove? Now, my friend, because he lives, we live also. We need not fear death. Do we look at it like that? What a wonderful, wonderful lesson. And then finally, because of the resurrection, you know what we should do? We should be like these women. We should go tell somebody. You know, this is what we call resurrection season, Easter season. I'm going to challenge you here. You ready? There's a challenge to every one of the end of these messages. I'm going to challenge you with exactly what Matthew would have challenged. When Matthew ended his gospel with this, you shall be my witnesses and I will be with you. What do you think the reader would have left with? Jesus is no longer here. He's now past this Co-mission. What is a co-mission? Co means together, right? And mission is what? You have to do something. So, I am arm and arm with you. As you go out, I am with you. You are to make disciples. You are to teach them. You are to baptize them. I am with you. It is a co-mission. We're, we're working together with Him to get the message of the death, burial, and resurrection, the gospel, to people. And one of our greatest responsibilities in our own life is to share it with somebody. And you know, as, as someone privileged to be able to share and speak with you, this is a challenge to my heart. Brian, I've talked about this this year, about, you know what? It's, it's time to get out. It's time for us to get out and rub shoulders and talk to people and tell people about Jesus and what He can do for them in their life. So I challenge you this resurrection season. Don't keep this message to yourself. Jesus is alive. He is still saving people. There is hope for the hopeless. There is life for the dead. 
There is forgiveness for the sinner. Jesus is still in the saving business. But His people have to share the message. We have to do it. And one of the marks of a follower, a disciple, a believer of Jesus is we want to tell people what happened to us. So can we all say together, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation unto everyone who believes. Have to believe. By the way, believing is not your business. Convincing is not your business. Our business is sharing. Are you willing to do what Matthew tells us we must do? And that's our challenge this week. Father, thank you for the wonderful, wonderful word of God. I pray this week it'll stir our heart. It'll do a work in us. And we thank you for it. Challenge us. Motivate us. And help us, Father, to tell someone about the good news of Jesus. Thank you so much. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're here this morning or you're online and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you can believe on Him for eternal life right now where you're sitting by simply just telling Him, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for my sin and I trust Him to take my sin that He bore on the cross. I, I put it on Him and I believe on Him for eternal life. John 3.16, probably the greatest verse. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but should have everlasting life. The one requirement for everlasting life is what? Believe. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. If you did that, tell us we want to help you. God bless you.